0: Take your Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 4, Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. In the futility of their minds, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They've become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that's not the way you learned Christ holiness. All right, let's pray. Oh, God, would you give life and light yet again to our minds, for your word is perfect, though we are not. And we ask, O Lord, that your spirit would be pleased he would be busy at work within us. For Christ's sake, amen. How do you make education work? Now, that That might be a question that you've never thought about. How do you make education work? How do you you force education to be successful? Uh, It is a question that is increasingly being asked in our current culture and honestly increasingly needs to be. Uh, I don't know if you saw it this week. A study came out this week looking at the Chicago school system, uh, which I thought was intriguing as uh, the average student right now in the Chicago uh, public school system has $33,000 spent on them a year. $33,000 $33,000 spent on the year, which is absolutely staggering figure uh, as to how much that student's going to have spent on them. And you would think, oh, okay, look, this is the most well-funded school system in America uh, by, by far. It's no longer the largest. I think it's like the third or fourth largest now. Uh, certainly, they'll do all right. Uh, and if you look at it, uh, last year, their, their kind of standardized testing, uh, 26% of students could read at a, a standard grade level. Um, 11% of African-American students could read at a way that was considered satisfactory. So you're looking at the, the most kind of well-funded school system in America. I mean, $33,000 a year per student thats a crazy amount of money. And yet, their performance is absolutely dreadful. Absolutely dreadful. They looked at some schools and didn't have single, like, single students that could actually pass any of their uh, grade competency levels. It was shocking. Shocking. How do you make education work? And really, that Chicago school system is just kind of a microcosm of the larger American, not just school system, but culture that is resting on kind of one very specific philosophical commitment. You didn't think you are going to get history of philosophy tonight, but you'll get a little bit of that. As kind of uh, the American um, philosophical experiment, American culture began to kind of blossom in this great nation of ours, one of the ideas that was experimented on and eventually adopted uh, was the philosophical system called pragmatism. Uh, One of the great names that many of you will probably recognize but not actually know why he was important was a guy named John Dewey. Many of us will recognize that, particularly the older hairs in the room as we'll go, oh yeah, the Dewey Decimal System. I remember using that. That's what my elementary school library used. That's how I found the books that I wanted to read. But Dewey was far more important because uh, he really began to answer that question of how do we make education work through a very specific set of kind of philosophical commitments. He was largely kind of agnostically relativistically pragmatic, meaning he he kind of, when he came to the end of things, he didn't really know if the truth ultimately could be known. And a large part of why the truth ultimately couldn't be known was because there were kind of a lot of different truths that really kind of mattered along the way. And the best that we could do was figure out in each situation what the best course of action was according to what it produced, Right, we, we look at the ends, and those ends determined the means. Uh, he was kind of responsible as largely, uh, not just him, but uh, that school of thought for reshaping the American educational system to be oriented largely around uh, t- kind of testing and, and jobs performance the way that is instead of kind of creating the Renaissance man or the Renaissance woman. But it was this kind of evaluation of, we just need to find whatever steps will help students do the best. We're Total pragmatism. We we don't really ultimately care about wrong or right. In fact, actually kind of foundational to their idea was a very specific commitment about evil. And it was this, that evil didn't really exist. And when it did, it was forced upon the child from the outside. Evil's just a byproduct of the system. It's a, a hard kid who's had a hard life, who's had hard opportunities, and they just kind of drew the short straw. And if we could take that kid out of that school system and out of that classroom and out of that world and put them into a different one, that kid will materialize into something brilliant and beautiful and wonderful. The, the, the problem is the institution, not the child and you see interestingly kind of the kind of foundation of that commitment that philosophical system is a very deep-seated denial of nature the nature of evil and the nature of good it's a denial of the nature of people which over the what 100 years plus 200 years plus I'm sorry we've watched that work out now, where we live in a culture that really denies any form of evil except for what? Disagreement. <laughs> Nothing's evil unless you tell me I'm wrong. And well, then you're evil because you're a bozo, because you're wrong and I'm right. And evil is, again, this kind of pragmatic thing that just gets in the way of producing ends and producing results. It's distorted our entire approach to figuring out how things work with people, because it's denied the existence of evil, and it's denied the existence of very specific and particular natures. Now, this is important when we come to the Bible— Because uh, the entire kind of Christian religion is not simply about head knowledge, remember this, it's about head knowledge that then works itself out into heart knowledge and then hand knowledge. Paul says it differently and says the, the end goal of Christianity is not just knowledge, it's love, it's delight in God and service of neighbor, it's head, heart, and hands, And this is functionally kind of where we are in this wonderful book of Ephesians. We've seen in chapters one and two the gospel laid out and then in three and four kind of the consequences of the gospel. And then into four, into five and six, we're going to start seeing kind of what that means in pragmatic relationships, what that, what that means in the day to day. And so we would want to ask that kind of question of, how do we make Christian education work? And I I don't at this point mean the Christian school or the home school or Christian educators in the public school. I I don't mean that. I mean in the church. How do we make people grow? That's a really important question and one uh, that is really essential for us to have some form of of understanding, some some answer to. Well, these uh, eight verses or so, whatever they are, seven verses, eight verses, are going to provide answer to that, though uh, maybe perhaps not quite as clearly as you might have hoped for, but we'll see what we can do to make it better. First, it starts out with this description of what we need to be kind of educated from, uh, what what our past is, and uh, what we're hoping to move away from. Verses 17, 18, and 19. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. All right, here's our educational goal as the church. We want God's people to move away from walking as Gentiles do. Now, here he's using that term Gentile, which certainly refers to it, people groups, which is non-Jewish people groups, but he's not using it again as we talked this morning in Sunday school. This is not the 23 and me definition of Gentile, right? This is not the not related to Abraham. This is the non-Christian, the unbeliever, the pagan, the unregenerate. We, as Christians, have as our goal not to live the way the Gentiles do. Now, what does that mean, to live the way the Gentiles do? Now, it's easy for us to kind of create a caricature. It's easy for us to just kind of say, well, the Gentiles are all bad, right? The pagans are all bad. The, the, the unbeliever, the reparate, they're all bad, they're all bad, they're all bad, and, and have some sort of straw man that doesn't actually explain anything. But we, we should do better than that. We should think carefully and honestly. And here he gives us kind of a, a kind of big category descriptor as to what their life looks like. It is one of. Futility in their minds. Futility in their minds, meaning immense amounts of effort are put in and no yield is given. It's futile, it's unproductive, it's not bearing fruit. I think of this as, you know, that kind of moment where um, hopefully you've never had this happen to your car, but you've seen it on television, I'm sure, where, you know, they're driving in the sand and they're not driving quite quickly enough and the, uh, the tires kind of bind and, and sink down into the sand and they hit the gas and just, and the wheels spin and the car's beached and it goes nowhere. No amount of energy no amount of effort, no amount of explosions in the engine will spin those wheels quickly enough to get them out. It's totally futile. It's completely stuck. Now, I love that it's describing kind of the, the unregenerate mind in such a way as this kind of futile in their efforts. I like that because it acknowledges the reality of what it means to be an unbeliever. No, it's easy for us as Christians, again, as I mentioned, to set up straw men and to not acknowledge uh, some of the common graces that the Lord does give to unbelievers. It it is important for us to understand that there are some unbelievers who think much harder than you do. (laughs) They spend way more energy trying to organize their minds and to organize their thoughts and to try to understand the world around them. There are some unbelievers that are grossly more disciplined intellectually than most of us, or perhaps even any of us in this room, right? We need to be honest about that, to admit that there are some that work way harder than we do. And, and this is, I think, sometimes a, a great failing of the church, that in doing so, we just kind of marginalize all them and say, oh, well, you're just unregenerated, marginalized, gone. You don't know anything. You're just an income poop. No, in fact, actually, they may be working incredibly hard. The issue is no matter how much hard work is put in, at the end of it, it's wasted energy. At the end of it, it's, it's, it's wasted energy. They may be working themselves to death to understand and to think and to comprehend, but at the end, it comes to naught. Well, why? Why is it that it comes to naught? Well, verse 18, they're, they're darkened in their understanding, alienated in their life of God uh, because of the ignorance that's in them, really due to, it. this is the, the, the operative clause in the English is the last one that then gives kind of cause and effect. The causes last, the effects are first. Why is it that all of their energy and all of their efforts at the end just results in futility? Well, at the end of the day, it's because there is a hardness of heart that's kind of the consequence of a dead heart. This is where Dewey kind of missed his entire educational system where he said, every child is good, every student is good. If you place them in the right circumstances, with the right opportunities, with the right educational system, with the right teachers, every child will flourish. And at the end of the day, really, Paul's going to say, wrong answer. Now, maybe in kind of just for mathematics, okay, fair enough. But when we're talking about the realities of the spiritual world, it's not just a matter of, did you grow up in church or not? Do you sit under good preaching or not? What Paul's ultimately getting at is, do you have a living heart or not? Because that's the problem ultimately with the unbeliever is that they have a dead heart. It's Absolutely hardened, deadened. Again, one of my favorite clauses in the Bible, unfeeling like fat. It's dead. And that deadness of heart produces a series of other problems. Darkened in their understanding. So, even when they do think at the end of the day, it's futility, it's not going to accomplish the rich, robust, the theological answers that they need. But even beyond that, their minds are darkened. Their their thinking is tainted, it's confused, it's disordered. Because their heart's dead. Their mind is darkened. It's part of this nature. So that their understanding is contaminated. And on top of that, then, they are alienated from the life of God. And here, not just getting at Paul, not just talking about being separated from relationship with God. He's not just saying that unbelievers don't know the Lord. That is a true statement in every sense of the word. But more than just that, of of the whole kind of Christian experience, the whole Christian life is one that does not yield for them. It doesn't yield the the rich harvest that would be hoped for. It doesn't yield the promise that would be given. It's not profitable to them. It's interesting, this is in so many ways... Why you've watched the American culture jettison Christianity wholesale over the last hundred years. Now remember, we we have as a nation, we are committed to pragmatism. Whatever produces the best ends is what we will do. And we're going to be religiously agnostic and we're going to be relativistic in every sense of the word. And once Christianity stops producing the ends that we want freedom, open sexuality, whatever else, acceptance and endorsements of all kinds of perversions, we're going to jettison Christianity because that's not the benefits we want. We want to be affirmed in who we are. We want to be told that we're, we're right and we're special and we're good and we're proper and we're true as individuals in our nation. And so we jettison an ultimate standard, a truth, a reality that is bigger than us. And as a result, you're watching again, it's amazing to see how our culture has largely divorced itself, uh, alienated from the life of God. I I think this is one of the ones that just, it makes me want to barf every time I hear it, but as we we begin to have these conversations and bad things happen, and you'll hear people say thoughts and prayers, I hate that, it's so dumb, it just makes me want to yak. But now you're beginning to see our culture is even getting less precise than it was, and so now it's thoughts and prayers to you. Thoughts and prayers to the people in Israel. We don't have any form of kind of higher standard to appeal to. We've jettisoned that, because if there's a God, he, he can tell us what's right and wrong, and I don't want to hear what's right and wrong. I just want to be affirmed in myself. so we've jettisoned the idea of God altogether. We've jettisoned the morals and the reality of transcendent things, and the, all we're left with is each other. And so when bad things happen, we have to say, "Well, my thoughts and my prayers to you, like that helps. It doesn't. doesn't help you, doesn't help me. I mean, I guess it might make me feel a little better like I'm doing something when I'm not. We're being separated from the benefits that come from just the entirety of the Christian experience. Why? Well, even ultimately explained here, it's ignorance. It's ignorance. And there's just a word that, again, do we love? Do we love this idea of, oh, well, the pragmatists love ignorance because if their person's ignorant, it can be corrected through education if we just educate more. That's why those that are historically uh, politically liberal in this great nation have, have uh, always pushed education. And education is a good thing. Don't, don't get me wrong on that one. But it's pushed education as a solution for the human condition. It's pushed education as a solution to the human heart. And the problem is, this ignorance is, according to Paul in verse 18, it's not due to a lack of education. It's ignorance that is due to a spiritual condition. It's not simply a matter of education. It's a matter of spiritual life. Look at the consequences that happen. Verse 19, this kind of, again, deals with it further to say, look, this is the consequence of this unregenerate way of living. This is the consequence of this Gentile style of life, is that having become callous, they then give themselves up to sensuality and are greedy to practice every form of impurity. I understand that this is, I guess, for most cultures, I, I'm in, I guess, currently, I guess, in most cultures, the age in which it is appropriate to start getting aggravated with the perversity of the younger generation. Right, I'm in my, my mid 40s at this point. I, I am now uh, old enough to be like, oh, them kids, Ugh, the bad things they do. Right? I get that I'm that point. But I think, honestly, if we're going to be really realistically true, the level of depravity that has been introduced in our culture in the last 10 years is shocking. And that's not just me being like, grumpy old man yells at cloud or tells kids to get off of his lawn. Right? The, the level of depravity that we have seen kind of Multiply. We've we've opened Pandora's box as a culture, and everything's coming out. We're like, Ugh! greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Again, if you doubted that, you realistically could look at just a handful of folks. You could look at our politicians. Politicians flow out of the culture that values them, right? Particularly in democracy, because if we didn't value them, we wouldn't elect them. That's the problem with democracy is the people that are liked the most and have the most money to get their face in front of people are the people that get elected. If we as a nation rejected and repudiated their immorality, they would not be elected. And the problem is, as a nation, we like it. No, that's not true, Michael. Um, prove me wrong well let's look at our entertainers our musicians right our our most popular uh, grammy award winners and things like that maybe they're the they're the models of piety in our land We, we can't even talk about their lives publicly, at least not from the pulpit, because it violates every sense of decorum that we've ever been taught as to how to behave in the pulpit. I can't tell you about their lives. I can't use them as examples. They're too depraved to even address. <clears throat> well, you say, well, Michael, that's their lives. That's what they do. Okay, fair enough, fair enough, fair enough. Certainly, your Netflix account or Amazon Prime account or Hulu account, or HBO Max account would confirm that you really do despise those things, right? This is one of those kind of amusing things to my life, uh, in my life is as we, we as a nation kind of decry the depravity of the land and say, we're, we're a nation that still at some point professes to be a significantly portion of Christians. If we just chose to stop spending our money on things, it, they, would, they would go away. And I don't mean it in the sense of boycotts and things like that. I mean that if we stopped enjoying those entertainments, if we stopped giving our money, to the, they would stop. And you're like, well, that can't be happening. Just watch what's happened with Disney and ESPN over the last five years. Tell me that's wrong. Right? Disney and ESPN made ESPN pushed the envelope too hard culturally. People stopped spending money on that. Now they're laying off like, staff like crazy because they can't afford to stay open anymore the way they are. But it is intriguing that what Paul is is articulating here is we as Christians are called to move away from this old way, this old way of life which has a dead heart that produces ignorance of mind, that produces futility of mind, that produces futility and evil of life. Move away from that. And you have the change, verse 20, ah, something different, yay, <laughs> oh, good news. That's not the way you learned it. Well, assuming you have learned it. In fact, actually, we're called as a Christian church to be about a very different educational experiment. Our task is not to take dead people and teach them new tricks. It doesn't work. They're dead. Right? It's not weekend at Bernie's every Sunday in church. It's not what we do. Instead, assuming that you've heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, we are taught to put off the old self, the dead man, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds to put on the new self. We're we're not, uh, in the Christian church, we're not necromancers of a kind where we take dead people and just teach them new ways to behave. It's not the, the seven tips to improve your life. The Christian church is about taking dead people and making them alive. Raising the dead, resurrection. And then the challenge that flows from it, which is to go and live according to that new nature. Put on the new self, created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. And therefore, verse 25 go live. Go live. what's being laid out is two separate natures that produce two separate behavior sets but the the operative emphasis the, the operative focus is on the difference in nature not ultimately in the difference in behavior Jesus would take up this idea in his teaching with great regularity, often using things like plants. Uh, I would imagine that because it was while he was often near plants. I love that, to think about the Lord Jesus' teaching and being like, hey, consider a tree. There's a tree right there. If the tree produces good fruit, it's a good tree. How do you know if it's a good tree? Well, it's producing fruit. It, it, It is the nature of the tree. But consider a bad tree. It's not going to produce good fruit, but the reason why it doesn't produce good fruit is because it's a bad tree. Bad trees are cut down and burned, and good trees are pruned, so they produce more fruit. But the key focus is on the nature of the tree. That's what he constantly emphasized, was the nature produced the behavior. You can't just paste Good behavior onto a bad tree. There's a tree, I think, up in New York City, I forget exactly where it is, where uh, some performance artist, I don't even know how they did this, it was wonderful, took uh, some tree, I can't remember what the original one was, I think it was like an apple tree, and grafted on like 37 different types of fruit. And you've seen this it's an absolutely marvelous tree. It's had a chance to grow. It's humongous, but it blooms at all kinds of weird times in the splotchiest of ways and produces all sorts of different fruit, and they all taste weird. It's the coolest tree ever. I love, I love reading it. I think about it because it's like the Bible tree, you know, where you have all of these Gentiles grafted in. <laughs> It's a good tree. It's Christ. And you have all of these kind of bits and bobs grafted onto it and produce fruit. And that fruit looks different in different places and it blooms in different seasons. And some of it tastes a little weird, but it's all Christ's fruit and his church. The nature determines the behaviors. All right, well, what do we do with that? Just uh, a couple of, of, of key points as we think kind of through this is that this kind of natural division is essential for the church to understand in a number of different ways. One is it's essential for us to understand how we interact with unbelievers because it's very easy for us to be angry with unbelievers for their behavior. It's very easy for us to be impatient with unbelievers uh, for their uh, poor behavior. It's, it's actually, this is one of the ones that some of us are going to struggle with, it's sometimes very easy or very difficult, I'm sorry, sometimes it's very difficult for us to be patient with unbelievers for their lack of understanding. Right? Sometimes we want to call them things in the back of our minds that we don't ever say out loud because we're, you know, civilized people, but we want to think that they're stupid or they're slow, or they're uneducated, or they're fools. And while, honestly, some of those things might be true in some cases, the reality is, is it should actually give us a greater sense of patience with them to know that their poor behavior is a product of their dead nature. They are behaving the way that their nature dictates. Now, this is an important question as you think about how creatures behave is to examine their nature. I don't know if you saw this one. I guess it was last month or the month before last. All time has blurred together for me since COVID, really. But uh, the United Kingdom is placing a countrywide ban on pit bulls. They're not letting them inside their country at all. And the reason why they say it is because the very nature of the dog is designed to kill. And while many of them are nice, sometimes they're not. Because, is it because they're bad owners? No. Is it perhaps even because they were necessarily bad dogs? Maybe, maybe not. Mainly it's because that's what their nature is. (laughs) They were bred to kill things, and they're very good at it. And so you have to be very careful with them because that's how they behave. You have to watch out. And so the government has said, you're not allowed to do that. It it gives a sense of understanding toward the animals and a sense of precaution. I think sometimes Christians perhaps forget this. When we go to interact with unbelievers, we give our hearts to them freely. We open up to them and we treat them with the same levels of vulnerability that we treat with our Christian friends. We, we kind of open ourselves up and say, I'm going to treat you as a brother or sister. I'm going to give you access to my heart. And then we are both shocked and surprised when they break our hearts because they do not share the same values, because they do not share the same nature. This is one of those things that I've constantly kind of been amazed at, how many Christians are comfortable with the idea of being just as close of friends with unbelievers as they are with believers. Absolutely not. You should not do that. One you share the same nature with, one you do not. Now, does that mean we shouldn't be friends with non-Christians? Actually, it means the exact opposite. You should be But you should be specifically, again, kind of foundation of this, to accomplish our educational goals. What do we want for these people? We want for them to be able to walk no longer as the Gentiles do, but to walk in Christian love and obedience and charity. And the way to do that is through a resurrected nature. And the way that we resurrect a nature, interestingly, is not arguing them into the kingdom. Why does that not work? because the futility of their minds, the ignorance that is in them and the darkness of their understanding. You cannot reason somebody into the kingdom of God. It doesn't work. Instead, kind of second application here, it means that our interaction with unbelievers is one in which we need to be appealing to the Holy Spirit. This is a thing I think, again, that we maybe sometimes forget. It's kind of odd that we forget it because it's so, such a basic thing, but God is responsible for salvation. And so when I am evangelizing, I'm not actively trying to appeal ultimately for the other person to respond. My ultimate appeal is for the Holy Spirit to change their life. That's an interesting kind of change in the end goal of evangelism. If the end goal of evangelism is simply for me to kind of badger them into belief, suddenly I've ended up in Christian pragmatism the same way Dewey argued, right? The ends justify the means. doesn't matter what I do as long as they believe. If I yell at them, if I scream at them, if I threaten to blow them up, if I bomb abortion clinics, if I, you know, whatever I do, is, if I, anything will justify, as long as it produces faith. Wrong answer. The ends don't justify the means. Instead, actually, what we're actively doing is constantly appealing to the Spirit of God. And interestingly, when it comes time for evangelism, he's even told us in his Word exactly what he loves to use, doesn't he? He loves to use faith, which you need to know the Word, and repentance, which means you need a call to repentance. He loves to use the loving kindness of his people to soften hearts, and to change minds. He loves to use the body of Christ being the body of Christ. But ultimately, at the end of the day, it's truth that God uses. And our challenge is to appeal to the Spirit of God for that truth. Maybe second set of kind of uh, applications, briefly, is this should, in some sense, transform how we think about the Christian walk. Now, some of us uh, have been uh, around the church long enough to have maybe heard that kind of out balance statement that, oh, once you become a Christian, everything gets easier. And that's both right and wrong, right? It, it's right in the sense of once you have the Spirit of God in you, everything is grossly easier. Uh, but at the same time, it's also not that it's instantaneously easy. And sometimes I don't think we've done maybe kind of full enough, well enough job of talking about kind of the difficulty, the exertion, and the effort that are required as part of the Christian life. Now, this renewal that Paul's describing at the end of uh, chapter 4 is an all-consuming, energy-demanding transformation to put on the new self. To put it on, to, to, to take this new character of God and to, to be completely clothed in it. Years ago, almost two decades ago now, when I was a youth pastor, uh, we did uh, one event that um, often my, my events were things that were very good in concept, but when they got executed, maybe executed just slightly differently than what I thought they were going to be. And one of ours, we had a giant relay race that took a couple of hours to complete and had a couple hundred kids, and it was really good fun. Uh, but one of the things we had done is you freeze a T-shirt, and then part of the kind of relay race is each of those children has to, to get the T-shirt undone and put it on. I'd seen it done before. It was really good fun. It's a, a great activity and, you know, perfect for a Saturday afternoon when you've studied the Bible for two hours in the morning, you're going to study the Bible for another two hours in the afternoon. Great way to burn off energy. Except when we got there for ours, our, our t shirts weren't just kind of slightly damp and frozen. Ours were solid blocks of ice. I mean I'm talking like a five pound block of ice, a, a gallon jug of T shirt that had been frozen. I don't know who it did, or how it did it or how did it? It's probably me. So by the time these kids have these t-shirts on, it's been 30 minutes of them beating it on the ground. They have sweat pouring off of them. They reek of body odor because I mean it's like the biggest, hardest, most difficult workout any human has ever accomplished. Like you could not design a better total body workout than taking a t-shirt block of ice, breaking it apart, and then undoing it all the pieces and then putting it on. So by the time they get this new shirt, the new shirt's destroyed, their old clothes are soaking with sweat, and they just need to go take a shower. But oftentimes, I think sometimes we kind of forget that that's probably the better portrait of what putting on the new Christian self looks like than how we most of us tend to go shopping for our clothes, right? We, we go shopping for clothes. Most of us, we get fancied up because you like to look good when you go to buy clothes in the first place. Nobody likes looking ugly when they start buying clothes. Well, you already look good. You got your hair looking good. You smell nice. You go to the store. They find the clothes that are going to make you look extra good. You put them on in that nice air-conditioned room, and then you walk out having spent more money than maybe you wish you had, and you feel good about the whole process. And then you go home deciding that you need to take a nap because you worked so hard at sitting in the air conditioning. too often, I think maybe that's how we think of our sanctification, is that we deserve a nap because we sat in the air conditioning, and perhaps maybe not quite enough, breaking open the t-shirt block of ice and putting it on with maximum effort. And the reason being, I think this is so intriguing, and maybe one of the parts we forget, is that because 22, 23, 24 Paul's highlighting that all of the effort that Christians expend flows out of that new nature, and when done according to the commands of God, strengthens that new nature. And this way, again, that exercise illustration comes to mind is that when you do proper exercise uh, hard enough and enough times, it gets easier. You find that it, it, it's less difficult. Right? After I had COVID, not that long after, it was the January afterwards, my doctor told me to go get a bike. He didn't want me running anymore, so I got a bike. And uh, I remember the first day I hopped on the bike. I ride here at church, I ride out this neighborhood and then down through some of the neighborhoods over this way. And the first day I did it, I thought I was going to die. And probably because honestly, I'm not that far off from that, truthfully. And I have, you know, all the fancy watches and phone stuff that keeps track of how quickly I ride and how far I ride. And uh, that first day, it was like very discouraging because my bike ride that was totally exhausting, all-consuming, ringing with sweat, I need to go take a nap afterward, was just slightly faster than the walks I used to take prior to getting COVID. My maximum exertion exercise was a stroll, effectively. But here I am, Two years later, I can't keep up with Brandon. He's way faster than I am, but I'm way faster than I used to be. My legs can handle it, and weirdly, my lungs can handle it. A part of the body that's not actually able to heal itself, that's not actually able to recover, a thing that the scar tissue is supposed to damage forever, all of that energy and all of that effort has done something so that I can breathe just a little bit easier. It's interesting, I'm riding probably one mile per hour faster now than even I was six months ago. That energy and that effort is producing something. It's it's changing something because it's flowing out of the nature that God has given me. In our Christian experience, it's important to remember that your energies aren't wasted if they're done according to God's commands. Now it's probably going to be a couple of months before I get to get to the next paragraph in this uh, section, but it's intriguing how what we're getting ready to get into is a bunch of those commands of to say, look, these are the activities that the Spirit of God uses: speaking the truth, being angry about the right things but not sinning, dealing with your anger so it doesn't dominate you, working hard and not stealing using your mouth to encourage and not gossip, or the Christian version of it, which is expressing concern or prayer requests for somebody behind their back when they haven't given permission. All of these things being used to build up because it's building up according to your new nature. It's interesting because this kind of gets all the way back at the beginning to say, well, how do we make education work and where did we end up with? Oh, no! Oh, no! We can't, right? That's the whole issue is you know, we can't make education work ultimately in the Christian church, but God can, which is my comfort and my consolation as a preacher. That When I preach good sermons, it's all God. And when I preach bad sermons, it's all the Lord, and he's going to use both. And he's going to use them to change his people. Why? Because their nature belongs to him, not to me. And he will change our hearts so we can have comfort that God will do it. And then, in light of that comfort, we then are equipped to work as hard as we possibly can because he promises to use and bless those efforts. And I don't fully understand exactly how that works, that he can be fully in charge of it, but still use and bless our efforts, but yet he does. And so we end up in a situation where we are free Free creatures, not uh, those that are futile in their minds, not those that are darkened, not those that are ignorant or hardened of heart, but we are free people, given God's law, given God's spirit, and equipped saying, Go be obedient. Work hard at the educational experience of the church, because in doing so, you are renewing yourself, verse 24, in the likeness of the very God Himself who loves you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the hope that we have in Jesus. Thank you that he changes us, not according to what we deserve, because, uh, but according to your mercy. We thank you for Christ's sake. Amen.